the MVP of Bobby was me on a 20 year old red Vespa that didn't start all the time, driving around London, finding cool people and asking them to, and interviewing them on the spot, taking all their information and then listing it on a sort of simple web form. This is My Product Tested, the show that unpacks how successful founders have tested their way to the top and all the market validation that happened along the way. In studio, as always, from the Hype team, Miles Herfak and Cameron Calder, and here in studio today, Tom Batting, CEO and founder of the local learning marketplace, Hobby. Tom and his founding team have spent over six years building a product that's on a mission to help learning and build a marketplace that offers loads of opportunities for people to find their potential spots. Tom, welcome to the studio. Thanks very much, Cameron. Nice to be here. Yeah, good to have you with us. Yeah, good to have you. So Tom, you just over six and a half years in, uh, built an incredible platform. Um, you guys have successfully beaten the tough years of COVID and you know now uh, a successful marketplace with you know 3,500 plus courses. Um, but for the listeners today, what is Obby? Yeah, so Obby is a, a marketplace for creative learning experiences uh, all over the UK and uh, and now globally. Um, we fundamentally believe that people um, should have a easier, easier access to learning the things that they love, whether that's related to their work or, or just the sake of learning for a hobby. Um, so, as you say, we have over three and a half thousand different learning experiences um, predominantly in the UK, um, but because we have experiences that are both in-person and live online, as well as pre-recorded, as well as learning products that can be sent anywhere in the world, uh, we have users from all over the world and we have teachers all over the world now too. Yeah, I know. I mean, um, you know, the reason why I mentioned COVID is because it must have played quite an impactful role and hence why you're speaking about the sort of online experience as well. Was was that quite a big shift and you know, how did you adapt and how quickly did you guys sort of change once once heading into COVID? Yeah, um, no, COVID was uh, uh, a game changer. Uh, very difficult for us to start with as, you know, March 2020, we were 100% in-person uh, experiences. And so, you know, the whole world went into meltdown and over a four-week period, we had to build uh, a virtual learning digital product, which we did which we launched uh, to support our businesses and try and move over as many of our experiences to to live online and virtual as possible. And that was good. You know, there was a real, real, I mean, you know, the, the market boomed um, in virtual experiences in that initial couple of months yeah. because I think everybody thought we were only doing this for a couple of months and uh, so everyone was coming up with fun things to do at home and that sort of thing. And, 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 and it was great to support our businesses and our marketplace members allowing them, you know, people who were doing in-person, let's say, cookery courses 
diplomas or classes were able to do that from their own home with their tutors um, through our sort of virtual classroom. Um, but I think that the, uh, the sort of desire and the need from customers to actually learn from people in person has now come back in a very big way. You know, um, I am of the personal view that if you're trying to learn something, you can't do it as effectively virtually or online as you can in person. Um, yeah. And I think that coupled with the fact that, you know, people had Zoom fatigue over a two year period means that yeah. there's still a place for virtual events and virtual learning, but I think it's just part of the ecosystem. It's not the main aspect of it. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, as Cam mentioned earlier, you've been going for six and a half, if not a bit more years. Uh, I'm sure that the growth has been pretty amazing. And obviously, you know, with COVID maybe accelerating that a little bit, we'll get into the growth just now, but uh, I'm just interested in what that specific problem was that you were trying to solve uh, six and a half years ago. Yeah, so Obby came about because I, at the time, was working uh, very long hours uh, in a finance role in the city, um, six days a week. I didn't really see my wife at the time, um, and I needed some sort of escape from... I needed actually a reason to not be in the office so that mm. I wasn't just there the whole time. And I, and this was also when the Great British Bake Off was, was a very large thing. And for some reason, I really wanted to learn how to make bread. Um, <laughs> and I either had to, yeah, really random, right? Um, you were three years too early from COVID. Yeah, exactly, right? <laughs> so either, either, I had to find something that was really near my office that I could pop out and go and do in the evening before going back to work, or I had to find near my house. Um, and I, I ended up, it was really difficult because um, what I found and what is still uh, to some extent a problem when you're doing in-person experiences and people want that tactile person-to-person contact, they think that you then don't need a digital presence to sell that product. But obviously the world has changed and, but just you know, before COVID and now since COVID, you've got to be able to actually search, you know, Generation Z and and and, and all that. Use their phones to book everything and to do research. So if you're not there, you're now just missing out. And at the time, it was very difficult because I literally went into my local supermarket on the ball on the pinup board, and they still have them. And you get people putting a little sticker saying, "I teach people piano lessons" or "I teach people this." Mm. And so I spent a lot of time trying to find somebody to teach me. And I ended up going to a famous restaurant chain in London and said, who makes your fresh bread every day? And being introduced to their pastry chef and then going to his house in Southwest London on a Sunday morning, um, which I realized is not something that very many people would actually ever do. <laughs> and thinking back on it, it was ludicrously silly. I went there with a bunch of cash. I had no idea who this person was. And I asked him to, make, to teach me how to make bread. And luckily it was all okay, but you know, I'm, I come from a big family. I've got two sisters um, and my I got home and, you know, I was making bread for my wife and my sisters and they were like, well, we would never, ever be able to do that. So I thought that there should be a marketplace that provides trust, ease of search, usability to both the customer and the tutor. But also I, I also in my search found so many amazing people teaching amazing things that had no way of, you know, 
knowing how to advertise what they do. If you're a world-renowned pastry chef or baker, you don't know the first thing about SEO or digital marketing. And you actually don't really want to either because you work with your hands all the time. So we, we basically launched Lobby to solve that problem and connect those people. Yeah, no, it's an amazing story. I'm, the amount of times I've walked into a bakery and seen them doing the whole artisan process in the background and you know wanting to ask whether you know you can come in for a day just to learn how to make their croissants um <laughs> and you know where do you, where you kind of start from there just like you said is you actually just ask them and and then that's the kind of initial process and i guess that's you kind of testing your your own product at the beginning to, to try see if this process could possibly work um yeah and and did you know after that you kind of realizing there's an opportunity here i need to solve it with something uh was it was it initially technology that you solved it with was there an existing mvp that you put out into the market or, or what did that initial sort of product look like um i mean to start with it was we basically had a landing page with a couple of things that you could book and allow people to book it online. And mm. actually, our, the MVP of Obby was me on a 20-year-old red Vespa that didn't start all the time, driving around London, finding cool people and asking them to, and interviewing them on the spot, taking all their information and then listing it on a sort of simple web form and then facilitating all the payments and the reservations manually. That was literally our first thing. Um, for the first year of the business, we had no transactional emails. So every time somebody looked at something and booked, it came through to me and I generated confirmation and payment emails manually, uh, which meant that when we had you know, random users we'd never heard of a few weeks in at 3 a.m. in the morning, I had to add a very loud notification on my phone and I was literally sending all the notifications to everybody yeah. because the thing that I didn't want to do was just use any existing system and build the communication and customer journey around what was in the market. We wanted to learn how people wanted to interact and speak to each other and then build a system to do that. And it was very hard to begin with, but it certainly paid off in the end. Mm. When you say uh, you wanted to learn how, uh, I guess people used your platform or, or how they were using it to interact. What were some of the metrics that you were looking yeah. at uh, shortly after that MVP launch uh, to sort of prove that market validation? Yeah, so uh, we looked at a few things. Um, from a conversion aspect, we were looking at what made people choose certain experiences over others, how important pages with imagery were, whether they were static, whether they were dynamic with video content. Um, particularly here, what we discovered at this point is customer testimonials and reviews are about the most important thing. Um, giving people too much information upfront actually hindered conversion quite strongly. So, mm. you know, a lot of people in the discovery journey think that they know what they want. Like, I want it to be a mile within um brixton tube station or something and actually what they actually want is they want to learn how to make bread they think they only want it 10 minutes from home but if they then find an amazing experience that's 20 minutes away from home 
they will actually go and do it, no problem. Hmm. But if you let them qualify, at, you know, qualify themselves to a point where there are no results, you then have a really bad impact on conversion. So that was one of the first things that we looked at. We looked at what information do we provide people? Um, how quickly do they then sort of self-qualify and what does that impact on conversion? And we learned that you need a base of information, but the driving factor behind conversion uh, was imagery and customer testimonials and reviews, yeah. Um, yeah. which is what we then built very heavily into our, into our flows. Um, from an actual metric perspective, we started then looking at lots and lots of different things. We started A-B testing every single page we had. Um, you know, we moved from an MVP to a proper marketplace, but we kept things relatively small. Um, you know, we only had 50 to 100 experiences, but every experience had five different versions of the page running simultaneously. Mm. Um, and sadly, this was not done by some snazzy A-B testing software. This was me rewriting every page, using yeah. different imagery, coming up with different things every single time um, and constantly tweaking them. Um, and, it, and it, you know, from a, from a metrics perspective, we were then able to start looking at when you add in things like payments into that journey, when a customer's made a buying decision, you actually then need to try and get them to, to pay how that is impacted by, again, number of clicks you have to do, the information you ask, what do you really need at the point ahead of someone paying versus being able to qualify afterwards? And that's where we started looking at very heavily, you know, on-site conversion metrics, which is which is what we've sort of continued to do yeah. today uh, by placing yeah. event tagging at basically every possible page of the journey. Yeah, I mean, Tom, it's amazing yes. that you sort of had the wisdom to know to start A-B testing and, and trying a whole lot of different things at a fairly early time in, uh, in, in, in the process. Um, what was that initial adoption like? You know, you said that you had that first year that was pretty analog, pretty manual from your side. What was the adoption like shortly after that? Um, and how long did it take for you to realize that, you know, wow, we're definitely onto something interesting here? Um, oh, I mean, it took, you know, things always take longer and cost more, uh, as everyone says, but, um, the first, the first year was, was really, um, first year was really, ch I, I'd say the first two years were, were really challenging, um, because, you know, to begin with, we had customers from sort of in our network and then, you know, two, two connections out of your network and then someone who's heard of you through a friend and, and all that sort of stuff. And then I think, you know, it was a, a few weeks in, we started getting, you know, random purchases, etc. And when things were analog, it was, it was, it was very slow because I mean, it was, we had no money. We quit our jobs and we were funding the whole business ourselves, not paying ourselves a salary. So we were literally, we had a, a sort of part-time developer and then, um, myself and one other person just manually doing everything. Um, and um, I would say that, you know, what I thought we would get to at the end of year one, we probably did 25% of, probably not even. Um, and then year two started moving much, much faster when what we realized was the way to solve the problem and the way to scale the business 
was not just on the customer side, but it was for the businesses that were listing. And it seems very obvious now, but six years ago, these things weren't around as much as they are. And in year two, the biggest change we made was we gave quite a complex backend to the people listing their experiences so that they could be constantly tweaking them, making them up to date, uh, managing their availability within their timetable and classes. And when we then allowed, you know, both sides of the marketplace to interact with one another without us getting involved, things start started moving much, much faster. And we started going from, you know, hoping for one booking an hour to getting 30, 40, 50 bookings an hour. And, you know, and, and then, you know, it, technically the business was, was founded on paper in 2016, but we didn't really get started. We didn't, didn't actually launch the business uh, to the public until the start of 17. And, and the bit I'm talking about now is that bit between 19 and 20, the year just over maybe 14 months going into the pandemic. Um, that's where we really started to see things scale. We started to see businesses joining us fully organically because we heard about us and we started to see customers come to us from places that we'd never even thought about from a marketing perspective. Um, and it was, it was, you know, we were growing all the time, but it was from a very small base. And then in the year leading up to the pandemic between September, September 19 to March 2020, we grew the business four times. Um, and, and primarily that is because our back, you know, thing, the communication and, and the, um, the interaction between our, our businesses and the customers became much more automated, but also we launched a customer referral, an internal referral scheme that we built where you, you know, if you wanted to invite someone, they got 10 pounds off and you got another 10 pounds off in credit. And that really drove things forward for us. Sure. Yeah. It's amazing to see that organic growth. And I think it kind of feels like everything's kicking off as you start seeing these organic signups coming through on the, the merchant side and then on the actual user. Um, but I would imagine it wasn't like that, you know, smooth sailing from the beginning where you're just getting these organic leads coming through. Um, and it's, yeah, no, it's not smooth sailing. And to be honest, no one is ever honest. No one is really honest about how difficult it is at the start. Uh, marketplace businesses are, are, you know, famously difficult to get off the ground. Um, and you have to have both sides really happy growing at the same rate for it to work. And it's, and if they're both growing slowly, that's okay. That will work. If one of them is, you know, if you have too many customers coming to you wanting things and you don't have the supply, they'll all leave and they won't come back again. And it's the same with suppliers. If you bring on too many suppliers, you know, you really, you can't, you cannot, you know, slower growth on both aspects is better than fast on one and none on the other one for sure. But it is super tough. I would say to, for between two and three years, at least once or twice a week, I was like, what am I doing? Like, honestly, what am I doing with my life? What is this? Bit of an ex- no existential crisis. <laughs> yeah, no one's done this successfully before. Why do I think I'm going to be able to do it differently to anyone else? Like, come on. Yeah. No, I, I mean, that sort of beginning part, you 
you spoke about uh, going around on the Vespa and this your acquisition strategy at the <laughs> at the get go. Yeah. Um, or at least your go to market strategy. So well, like, well, exactly. I mean, I, I was I was living outside doing everything I could to acquire there was there was a three week period. It was very, very cold. It was in February 2019, where all I did was flyer houses in you know, bear in mind, I'd come from working in a suit every day in a financial services company. And there I was in a hoodie that I'd sewn an obby logo to handing out <laughs> 5000 flyers into doors around South London and sticking stickers, possibly illegally onto lampposts and traffic lights and, and, you know, putting things through doors of businesses that I thought could teach people cool stuff. Um, yeah, it was, it was crazy. Yeah. And I mean, you, you spoke about, uh, you know, in the beginning, you guys aren't really putting a salary or anything. It's your, it's self-funded and bootstrapped. Yeah. Um, and you don't have the luxury of, you know, a VC or angel backing fund where you can blow money on loads of awareness. And just as you say, you know, these flyers are your own awareness and saving budgets costs everywhere by sewing your own merchandise logos. Um, what did that kind of progression look like over the years from a sort of growth and marketing perspective? So obviously, you know, you're looking at the numbers very tightly. The business bank account is basically your personal bank account. Um, and counting those numbers and spending them in the right places. How did that kind of evolve over time from, you know, your Vespa acquisition strategy to slowly ramping that up to actually acquiring the right mer merchants who are ready to do business with you and then getting the actual customers? Because as you say, the two-sided marketplace strategy is very difficult because you acquiring two separate customers. Yeah. So, um, we, we, we did a few things. We did a cup, we did a, you know, small angel rounds within the first 12 months at once we were sort of, you know, we, we were always very confident about the market. That's one thing that's never changed. And I'm more confident about the market today than I was six years ago. Uh, and I'll probably be more confident about it next week. Um, but yeah, it's the path of getting there that's that's always been difficult. But when we were, you know, when we became very confident that the market was very, very large and people are going to be spending money on this in a big way, we raised uh, a little bit of money. You know, we went out to some angels and that sort of thing, and, and we, we, we took them on the journey. And we were very, very conservative with our spend to, to begin with. And in the first few years, you know, um, we took incredibly low salaries, which were effectively there just to ensure that we didn't ourselves get into any like financial difficulty. So we would pay our rent and our bills and that, and kind of that was it. Um, because actually we had no time to do anything else. You know, I wasn't, I, I mean, I didn't, go on holiday or go out to restaurants. I went to a lot of cooking classes. You know, that was how I ate. Um, <laughs> and, um, but the, the, the progression along that, I think, was very interesting because, you know, we've got lots and lots of things wrong over the years. Um, and, and I think, you know, one of those things was that because we were so, so tight on our budgets and, and 
we always, when it came to marketing, there was a point where we just said, okay, if we cannot see exactly pound for pound our return on investment, we're not doing it. And, you know, talking about the flyering, for example, three weeks of me in the morning before work and in the evening until midnight flying through people's doors is technically free, but it's not, is it? You know, you spend a couple mm. of hours on flyers and so you just think, okay, you don't care. But, but if it doesn't make a difference, okay. But it might make a difference, but you can't track it. And we took the decision at that point to only really look at and invest in things that we can really track and know that worked. So above the line advertising is something we didn't do and never did. And brand advertising we didn't really do. And um, looking back on it now, I probably would have done, kept up some of that and done a bit differently. Um, but, you know, you have to make these really difficult decisions. And, and when you're when you're trying to justify why you're going to be spending a couple of thousand pounds on a marketing campaign, you want to be able to say, well, I've spent £2,000, but I've got 25000 back. So, yes, that's why I've done it. Whereas spending £2,000 on flyers mm. and having no idea. You know, QR codes are now everywhere and super easy to generate. You know, I knew what a QR code was, but if you put it on something six or seven years ago, you know, people thought it was some sort of just, just alien a barcode. communication. <laughs> yeah, a barcode. They're like, why is someone putting a barcode on here? Do I scan it in my test codes or something? You know, like, it wasn't, you know, now it's very, very above the line advertising is very trackable. It wasn't then. So, so as we grew, we only really focused on things that we could track digitally from a conversion mm -hmm. perspective. So we looked at, you know, we did do Google, we've done PP, you know, we, we focused on PPC, we focused on retargeting, we focused on social media. Um, and I would say that the biggest win for us was focusing very heavily on an organic an organic content acquisition strategy. And that, that's kind of what's dr driven us forward today. Mm -hmm. um, there was a point, you know, that period, 1920, going into the pandemic, we were spending quite a bit on, on marketing, on digital marketing, retargeting and and, 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 you know, PPC, um, um, and when you're on a roll and you've got momentum, I think it makes sense, but I don't think it makes sense as a way of getting started. I don't think that you can start from nowhere by just chucking thousands of pounds at Google. You, you need to be a brand recognizing and, and you're, you have momentum moving forward and customers are referring you as well. And then it becomes one of the channels. If it's your only channel, I think it'd be, it's very difficult. And that's what we, we, we certainly found. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Tom, I'm sure you have an amazing team with you now, but what has that journey been like uh, in terms of internal growth? Uh, and what, is, what do your people mean to you and what have they meant to you along the way? Um, I think the, the people aspect has, has, has been the hardest part to to really scale well, uh, in, in my opinion. And, and I think that's because, um, you know, at certain points it comes out of your control. Um, my team, uh, I've had people with us, well, still basically since day one or five years in. Um, and I've had people who have worked for a very short period of time and moved on. Um, I think when it comes to building a team, the most important thing that you can do 
And the things that we've got really, really right is looking for people who kind of love the mission that we're on. And I'm not talking about who are, you know, I'm not talking about someone who's spending every night and every weekend doing a painting class or a, a cooking class, but people who, who fundamentally believe that, um, you know, learning through the experience of others or spending time with people to learn new things versus buying products and, and things like that. Um, having those people as part of the team has been amazing because they drive things forward in a way that you don't necessarily do yourself. Um, I think what we've struggled with in the past um, is coming up with a, a very consistent uh, recruitment system from a timing perspective. So, you know, when you know you need someone in a role, you then need them immediately and as fast as possible. And, you know, you have, you put a job out there. We've always been very lucky. Uh, we will usually put a job out ad on Angel or LinkedIn or one of these platforms and get a couple of hundred applications within a few weeks. And you then just start going through all the people. And we've made the mistake of kind of the minute you find something you think is good, great, make them an offer and that's it. Because you're just so desperate to do it because if you don't have that person in there, that role is not adding to growth and you're slowing down and your things are getting in your way. And I think one of my mistakes has not been, has been not being more patient during that process and taking time to bring in the right people. We've got it right on a number of occasions and, you know, a third or half of my team have been here since almost day one. Um, but yeah, if we, if we were able to take more time, I think we would do a better job there. Yeah, I mean, you always, uh, as I say, you got to hire before you need to hire. And you kind of got to, because you never know when it's going to happen. And when it happens, as you say, it's an immediate hire that's that's required. Um, and and kind of, you spoke about the mission there, um, you know, finding the right people in the, the team to actually help us get to that mission and continue achieving that mission over time. Um and just going back to that initial problem that you were solving when you first started, Obi, um, you know, are, are you solving that same problem today? You know, with the changes from uh, a technology performance side can now make the lives easier of these uh, potential course offerers. Um, and, you know, has that changed or is the, the kind of line in the sand the same, but you know, the actual features that you're offering and how the business direction is, is kind of remaining the same. Yeah. So, um, um, I would say like we've, our offering has, has changed dramatically over the last few years. Although from the outside, you, you might not be able to see that as clearly as, as a customer, but, um, we, we actually just, launched a new brand underneath the business three months ago called Baloo, which is a, uh, a bookings management platform and website builder for small business, small businesses um, across the world. Um, I mean, yesterday morning we had a escape room company in New Zealand sign up to start using it for their franchise, um, which is, which is, you know, further away from learning than, than where we started. Um, I think, 
the 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 biggest change for us is that going back to those early days when I was the consumer wanting to find something to learn, I thought the problem was that things weren't just online and readily available, and that was part of the problem. But the other part of the problem was that the actual uh, educators or the people running these experiences, um, they're too small to get like proper advice or, or, or be helped or have a big team. Um, um, but actually, it's very, very hard to run a group event, whether it's in person or online, where you've got different people coming together. Uh, it's very, very difficult to actually manage lots of customers who are effectively buying the exact same product. It's not like e-commerce where you make something and then people might buy it. And the minute someone buys it, all you have to do is send it to them. Um, it's not that. What you have to do is you have you have this problem, this massive problem with matching people into the same date and time so that you can run an event profitably because you can't run 60 events a month when you only have one person on each one of them because you'll just lose money. Um, so what we realized was actually the reason why there isn't more supply in the market is because the smaller businesses in this market don't have a decent way of batching customers into timetable events because everyone's timetable is different, right? Um, and you know, from a conversion perspective, I can tell you if a hundred people look at your pay, look at your event and you've got one date on it on average, only three of those hundred people can then make that day and time, right? So you need to be able to manage a forward-looking timetable so that you have multiple dates and times and you need to drive many more people there to be able to get enough people so that you've got the minimum you need for that. And so what that fundamentally changed about Obby was that the way that we drive this market forward and make this more accessible to everyone is by providing the best software to the underlying educators and experience providers. And we started heavily investing in that about three years ago. So. You know, it's not just about listing your events or your experiences on Obby. It's actually our backend, our software infrastructure allows you to analyze your timetable, allows you to pull customers from lots of events, batch them into one event type. It allows you to uh, run pre-recorded uh, live online sessions um, and also integrate accounting and timetable management with any of your tutors if you're a bigger business and you've got multiple instructors. Um, and that's what we've now launched as a separate product blue to people outside of the learning industry so we've got people who have the same problem but not in the learning but still in the skill sharing so um we're weirdly becoming popular with puppy training companies and dog training businesses which effectively is skill sharing you know it's not a learning environment where you're in a classroom or anything like that but you know you are doing knowledge sharing and those people have the same problem you know they want to get six people on saturday morning to come to a session how do they do it how do they manage those customers yeah. Um, and I think that's been a real progression for us. It's very exciting. We now have a software product that's sold in its own right, uh, has integrated payment processing, accounting services, etc., um, and allows people to build their own brands a bit like the Obi Marketplace did, but for themselves. Yeah. I mean, uh, six and a half years down the line, you've, you've managed to build something really amazing. What are some of the biggest obstacles that you faced on this journey, and how did you overcome those? Um, I'm going to ignore the pandemic because I feel like that is a once in a lifetime yes, thing. We hope. Um, we hope. Um, I think uh, for, for a marketplace business, funding and financing is always a problem. I don't think we, I don't think we 
did an amazing job at solving that. Um, I haven't got any institutional capital in the business, only angels and, and other founders, um, which means that we have less money than, than traditional marketplaces would do, but we're probably more careful with it. Um, I think um, uh, our early obstacle was, hang on a minute, we've read about all these amazing marketplace startup experiences where someone goes from zero to to 100 million in two years like we're not doing that are we failing is this the wrong thing when you look under the hood of pretty much all of these businesses they've been around for a long time in some way or another you know airbnb started as a couch surfing company a long time before it got anywhere um and overcoming you know stepping away from the industry chat about how people get started and looking 100 percent at your business and your market and understanding your customers took us some time to do because you're always looking at what other people are doing and how they're, they're growing it and and i guess fundamentally two years in we realized nobody in the world i, I genuinely don't think anyone in the world understands the market knows how customers behave or suppliers behave better than i do like no one is going to come into me in a meeting and talk to me and understand actually how this works better because I don't think anyone has spent 10,000 hours doing this before except for me and my team because otherwise there'd be a big brand out there that does it. Um, so I think having that confidence to like not be like totally inward facing but kind of not get taken in by the hype of other people and try and copy what they're doing I think, you know, staying true to yourself, like speaking to customers every single day, whether for me, that's on both sides. So for us, we speak to the users, the suppliers, the experience hosts, as well as customers and like literally picking up the phone. Um, you know, I was, I did a demo call just now before talking to you guys, um, um, with a customer that has a slightly different proposition to stuff that we've doing. And I wanted to understand more about the business and how our software works and et cetera. Um, so I think that was a really, really big thing, which was like being confident about your own business, looking inwards and, and then coming off that is spending as much time as you can actually talking to customers and talking to, to your users, because that moved us into more of a product led growth business. You know, um, we might only have a few clients saying that they want to have multiple time zones. Okay. But if you don't have them, I can't have people signing up in New Zealand and Amsterdam like we now currently do. And that wasn't on our on our plan, you know, anywhere, really. I mean, it was, but it wasn't until someone asked for it. And so that was a real game changer for us when we started really talking to our users. Um, I think the, the, the biggest hurdle that we've, that, that I have faced, I think probably as a founder, is... Um, sits on that team side of things um it's trying to structure the business the team size in the correct way is very very hard because not all roles that you bring on um directly correlate to growth and when you're really early days and you don't have very much money and all you're trying to do is get more customers booking and more things i think early days we sort of focused a bit too much on only bringing in roles that were going to show us that the business was growing and there's a point and hopefully not you know we we did get there and 
and and hopefully most people do there. But there's a point where do you know what you do need people who just make sure that your customers and your 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 suppliers have have an amazing experience. You know because you, it's not linked to growth, but it is because the longer they stick around, the more they talk about you. It's that brand play that you can't really you can't really put a number down against. But I don't think we made that switch early enough. I don't think we invested in our general operations and like ensuring that everybody's having an amazing time. It was too much like, no, we need another developer because that developer is going to be able to build this and then we're going to be able to go after the segment of the market and we're going to be able to grow the number of users we've got. Um, and I think that was a really big challenge trying to figure out how you build the team. And I, I think it, it's a challenge because no one else generally no one else has done it trying to do exactly what you're doing so it's really hard for anyone else to give you really good advice about it um and you can talk to other people doing it but fundamentally you just got to go with whatever you think is the best decision yeah it's a, almost the you know the, the first two years the struggle years you're kind of looking outward for some sort of uh, soundboard whether that be, you know, other founders or getting the advice from industry experts. But, you know, at the end of the day, your specific industry, your specific business launch time, your specific users are completely unique to yourself. And I think a lot of founders, you know, get trapped in the initial two years and sometimes bow out because they're seeing the speed of other startups or they're possibly seeing the amount of money they're raising or the traction they're gaining. But, you know, your business runs on a different timeline to everyone else's. Um, yeah, and and yes, and that's exactly true. And some of the biggest businesses, and not just from a top line number perspective, and you know, obviously the world is changing about just top line valuation metrics and this and stuff. But some of the most successful businesses in the world that have paid the founders, the directors, the employees, the shareholders, the investors owners of those businesses all the stakeholders have paid them way more money back than others some of those are not you know they're not all 50 billion dollar businesses you know some of them are 50 million 100 million 500 million pound dollar businesses that have taken 20 15 years to get there and have made really really good money and i think if you're not on the right i'm gonna go from zero to a billion in three years it doesn't matter you know that's 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 okay um, yeah, because there are many more of those that you just don't hear about failing than there are that are successful. Yeah, for sure. but it's very hard yeah. when that's what everyone reads and talks about. <laughs> yeah, uh, so often you see these uh, successful startups, or at least they call, still called startups, you know, and you see them uh, successfully ra- uh, raising huge rounds or successfully re- uh, reaching certain milestones. And then you actually look at their timelines and they've been around for eight or nine years or, yeah. or five or six years. And only now are you hearing about them, but you know, everyone looks at that and thinks they in year one. Um, and I think that's, that's a big thing. And, you know, as you said, those are, those are two big learnings and mindset changes. Um, and, you know, you guys came from, or you specifically came from this corporate background, as you speak about wearing suits every day and then, you know, moving into a full-time startup position. Um, you know, leaving that company to start your own business back then, um, there's, you know, a lot of risk, but also you have this mindset about this sort of undeniable belief of this business's and idea's success. 
Um, and now sort of six and a half years later, you've been through all these challenges and successfully moved through that and, um, you know, overcome a lot and then had a lot of successes. What is that mind shift change been like, you know, from when you originally left and, and started to, to where you are now? Um, well, I would actually say that I, I was less, when, when I first left my job and I had no salary, I was less worried about it. Cause I was like, okay, if this doesn't pan out, I'll get back to my job in two years time. And, um, you know, there's always things that I can do in my spare time to earn money, to put food on the table. It turned out. I just went on a lot of cooking classes and that's how I ate. Um, and I had a very, very supportive, um, wife at the time. Um, uh, it was a school teacher who was, you know, making sure that I didn't go hungry. Um, and not everyone has that, but, but actually I was not, I didn't really worry or think about the risk at the time at all of leaving my job. It's actually got much, much worse throughout because the, the longer that you do this, the more you convince yourself what you're doing is amazing. And like, I'm much more confident about both the market that there's a problem in it that needs solving. And there are tons of customers and you know, on both sides that love this product. Um, that I don't, I can't see myself ever doing anything that doesn't drive this mission forward. And actually a year of not earning a salary or earning just enough to cover your rent is actually okay five years of that is not, you know, and actually that's, you know, as you go through that journey, you become more confident about the business and you become more confident about the market, but actually, you know, it becomes a bit scarier because everything becomes tied to it and you start thinking about, okay, well, I'm going to sell this business in some time and then you'll, you know, what's the next thing, et cetera. And, and I think actually, um, the journey, I, I never thought, I always looked at the outside when people say, oh, I've not done enough. I can do more. I can get it further. Or like, it's not, I'm, uh, it's not successful yet. This, you know, it's the next bit's next. But I always thought, you don't actually think that, do you? And uh, like, I genuinely, I, I don't think that we're a successful business. You know, I don't think that we're a, a big brand. I think of ourselves as a little business, a little, still a little startup trying to hustle and bustle through, you know, the, the craziness that is the world that we're currently living in. Um, and I think from the outside, lots of people would look at that and think about that differently. And I do think from a personal perspective, that's been one of the biggest challenges. I think this founder mindset thing, I'm actually not sure it ever goes away. I think there are some things that you become really confident about, some things you, you know and you become really good at and you start having more confidence to make decisions and, and drive things forward. But, um, yeah, I feel, I feel like I'm in a riskier position now than I was back then. I mean, you know, I'm probably not, I'm probably, <laughs> you know, that is probably all in my head, but you know, that feeling is like, Oh, is this, you know, really, is this, you know, is this the thing or like, am I making this right? Like, do we go down a different route, etc.? I think there's because, because the world moves so fast now, it's, it seems moving faster and faster and faster as, technology becomes ingrained in everything that we do. Things can literally change overnight. Google can just decide to change their algorithm and our 80,000 of our landing pages just go from page one to just gone, you know, 
it's it's a freak out moment right so so i think i think um i i've absolutely loved the journey and i still love it um i don't think it gets any easier um i think it's still it still feels like you're going to you know you're going to battle every day you just have a better team and army with you and you're more confident about winning yeah i mean the the ship just gets bigger and bigger over time yeah you're just trying to balance it exactly Um, Exactly. but yeah tom thanks so much for your time we really appreciated this and thanks for being so honest with the the journey that you've been on and um super interesting to hear the riskier mindset um which which we'll phrase from now on um but uh yeah tom thanks so much for this this epic recording and i'm sure all the listeners are going to enjoy this brilliant all right thanks cameron thanks miles yeah thanks tom good to have you that's uh, Tom Berting, founder and CEO of Obby. We'll uh, catch you guys next week for another episode.